Canterbury fails. Their Canterbury fails. Probably never read them. The Canterbury fails. Might be moralistic or boring. Might be rhetorically soaring. Their Canterbury fails. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to the Canterbury Fails. My name is David Coley. My name is Matt Hussey. And we are back for episode 3.6 from our brief sojourn in 15th century Scotland. Oh yes. Yeah, it was nice up there, but we are back today, dear old Blighty, uh, with the anonymous poem, Complaint or Lament, depending on your publication of choice, of a prisoner against fortune. Now, unlike many of the fails, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to do what we usually do here. I'm going to give a quick manuscript, date, authorship, rundown. Then we're going to talk about Matt's drink, which is here foaming opaquely next to me. Uh, <laughs> unlike, about, I, <laughs> that's how we're going to treat this poem as well. We're going to foam opaquely. This poem is not at all opaque. Oh, my God. It is just, yeah. All right. Uh, unlike many of the fails, which, you know, as, as our regular listener will know, uh, tend to exist in unique manuscripts, this complaint actually exists in a whole bunch of manuscripts. Oh. Um, there are at least three of them. Uh, most of these manuscripts, and this is an important context for the work, and I'll get into that in a minute, are copies or redactions of manuscripts by John Shirley, who was born in 1366 and died in 1456 at the ripe old medieval age of 90. Good work, John Shirley. God, a literary life I know, seriously, treats you right? well. Shirley is mainly known to us as a scribe and a translator. Yeah. Um, uh, though he did often uh, apparently dabble in poetry himself, and we'll come back to that in a minute too. Um, and he preserved a lot of the minor works of Chaucer, all those ones that kind of exist in the riverside between like the Legend of Good Women and then the two poems that nobody reads and works with. You're like, is that the Lock of Steadfastnessa? It is the Lock of Steadfastnessa. It is an ABC. It is truth. It is fortune. Compla- you know those those. What about Tol Rosamunda? A, mir- a real favorite of I mine. I think Tol Rosamunda is there too. I mean, the, the, so that that group of short poems, which in the Riverside is simply called the short poems. Yes, uh, that's that's where you find a lot of the works that John Shirley uh, preserved. Um, and so, equally, well, thank you, John. Thank you. There's some good stuff in sure. there. Adam Scriven. It's a lot of it. But equally important, he copied many of the works of Chaucer's 15th century friend and sometimes rival, John Gower, and his 15th century acolytes and followers, most particularly our good friend here at the Fails, John Lidgett, <laughs> and to a lesser degree, Thomas Hockley. And this is interesting to me because it kind of suggests that Shirley is a, is a sort of like scribal bridge between the like turbulent and insanely sort of productive and innovative moment of the 14th century and the 15th century in the Lancastrian period when that moment in the 14th century was being increasingly codified into a kind of literary canon and into a sort of literary stream. Gotcha. So I think Shirley is important um, in that way, and I think this text may be important in that way too, and again, that's a context that we can certainly talk about. Because of how it was presented, and this is uh, as I turn to authorship, because of how it was presented in some of the manuscripts, which is to say that it follows Chaucer's complaint unto his purse without any sort of break or rubrication, like it just says an amen under the one and then the next one starts. Um, This has been attributed to Chaucer at various points in the past, but that attribution is no longer accepted. Get his name out of your mouth. (laughs) That's exactly right. If you ever read the damn thing, like you can sort of tell, like this is either Chaucer when he wrote it when he was 11. (laughs) 
<laughs> or it's not his at all, right? Um, and so uh, in the early 19th and 20th centuries, though, a couple authorship candidates have been put forth. So Frederick Furnival, he of the great mutton chops and white beard, uh, argues um, that Lydgate is the poem's author, and that's always a good guess because Lydgate mo wrote most things in the 15th when in century. Doubt. <laughs> right? Um, Eleanor Hammond suggested the doomed Chaucerian Thomas Usk, uh, oh. author of The Testament of Love, who was beheaded horribly uh, in the 14th century after the Merciless Parliament, uh, and also the 15th century uh, George Ashby. Um, Ashby, who writes The Complaint of a Prisoner in the Fleet as possible authors. And then Ethel Seaton argues in her thunderously large 1961 uh, monograph, Sir Richard Ruse, Lancastrian poet, that Question it was... Mark? Sir Richard Roos. Okay. Right. Okay. So these are the kind of figures that we're looking at. And and finally, um, uh, Richard Firth Green, whose 1971 essay, I Have Shamelessly Mined for the Information I Just Presented to You, suggests William de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, who was imprisoned for misrule in 1450, exiled from England, and then beheaded on sea uh, on his way to his exile in France. Okay. So it was. It's a bunch of people that have suffered serious <laughs> horrors and indignities. Well, I mean, it's in a their prison. Lives. It's it a, is. It's a prison poem, so it makes sense that everybody who's had a bad go of it is getting touted well, right. as a possible but author. Here's the other thing, and I actually really like this about um, about Suffolk as a possibility. Suffolk. Do you know who Suffolk's wife is? No. Alice Chaucer. Oh my. Do you God. know who Alice Chaucer's grandfather was? Um, Chuck. No. Yes. Bill. <laughs> Ted? It was Jeff, yo. <laughs> Jeff Chaucer, right? And so, like, I thought this was kind of a cool sort of, you know, circle thing. I don't know. I mean, I, it doesn't make or break anything, but it's kind of interesting. So. Sure, sure. Alice would have had his works around, and this poet clearly knows clearly Chaucer's knows, work. So, sure. And maybe not much else. Um, but... Of these, you know, I, I think that the sort of diversity of authors that are being proposed here suggests also the diversity of dates here. So I kind of like using Usk uh, in 1388 when he died and Shirley in 1456 as the kind of terminus a quo and terminus ad quem. I okay. kind of dig okay. those authors as the range, but what we're, we, we don't really know and there's, there's not enough evidence to, to pin it well, down. Well, one of so. the reasons there's not enough evidence is because there is... Nothing unique about this poem. There isn't, including no. its manuscript. I mean, it is it is the most well. It's not the most standard sort of Boethian complaint, but there there isn't anything that makes it stand out. Really and so not. this could be written at any point between yeah. basically Chaucer's publication of the Boethian. It's so general. And yeah, you yeah. Know, the, the early yeah. modern period. Um, okay. So we're looking at 14th, 15th century. That's sort of as close as we can get. Okay. That's the manuscript, authorship, date, all that. Let me just give you a couple more tidbits, and then we are going to get to this frosty, opaque beverage, which anomalously has a lemon in it. Um, print editions. In the past three centuries, inclusive, we have seen three editions. <laughs> one, e one a century. One per century. And that's all you really need. That is exactly all you need. Actually, you probably don't even need that many, but that's all right. 1872, Frederick Furnival, Originals and Analogues of Some of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, published in Trubner for the Chaucer Society. In 1909, Eleanor Prescott Hammond publishes an edition of this in the journal Anglia, uh, number 32, in case you're keeping track at home. And in 2000... You know it's a badass journal when it's 1909 Anglia. and it's already in their 32nd. I know. I know. Yeah. There's, I love those. I, and, they, and they all have names like Gefritten. And you know, there's two. Is it that, is that the one where there's two Anglias and they had it because there was a, like a, 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 a schism? A falling out. There was a schism. Like the Great Anglia. And then schism. so sometimes you're like, I want the Anglia from 1912 or whatever. 
it wasn't during the war, but whatever, 1896. And it's like, well, oh, do you want Tübingen or do you want Göttingen or whatever it is? Like, I don't even know. Like there, but they did. There was a split in. It. Never mind. You know, I mean, the, the the stakes are so low for that conversation, and it is only right that there could be such an intense schism that it would divide <laughs> a journal like Anglia into two feuding factions. The editor of Anglia might be one of our only listener, and he might be right now being like, "How dare you!" I know. Do you so, think he's of the of the Tubingen Sea, or is it he, could what's be? Going on? I don't know. I don't know. It's right. tough to say. The edition we're using here is the 2005 Lynn Mooney and Mary Jo Arne uh, version from Kalamazoo uh, Teams edition. Uh, it is the Kingus Quare uh, and other prison poems. So sure. one, two, three, and that's what we're looking at. In terms of its claim to oh. Canterbury fail, this is an easy one. I can't believe, I would be shocked if there was any controversy about this. There's one. not a lot of controversy. And so what happens is it gets sort of popped into various sure, things and sure. it gets discussed. Anytime there's a prison in literature conversation, right. surely. Somebody mentions it, right? Oh, so of course. There's well, the, as you know, the lament um, of a prisoner against what? Lynn Mooney mentions it in a uh, in an article about John Shirley called John Shirley's Heirs in the Yearbook of English Studies. That was in 2003. Mm. Um, poem is mentioned in a much wider discussion, but it really, if, 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 if this were a Canterbury fail on the cusp, if like I had two real articles waiting, I could discount this article. It's a perfectly fine article, but it just sort of mentions the work in passing. Sure. Um, and then in 2019, and I actually love this one. Oh, that's in recent. In 2019, very recent, A.T. Brown, in the Journal of Medieval History, in an article called The Fear of Downward Social Mobility. Oh, Right? Oh, in late sure. medieval England, we always think about getting upward thrown, mobility. Getting and so thrown forth. in prison would be a downward mobility. The moment. fear of downward social. He quotes the poem oh. in passing okay. and cites it correctly and all that good stuff, but he never even mentions it by name. It's just, it's like line 21. He quotes, So turn the wheel that a may wannus arisa. Right? And that's it. It's just kind of like blended into his own discussion of downward mobility. Uh -huh. So those are the two mentions in our sort of fails window. Before that, uh, Margaret Connolly's John Shirley book production and noble household in 15th century England, which is 1998. That, that mentions it, you know, over the course of a couple of pages. But again, it's not in the service of itself as a poem. It's in itself as, a, as an artifact, as a public publication history, manuscript history, that kind of thing. All right. Um, before that, and, and this is, I think, the most substantial article on it, uh, Richard Firth Green's 1976, the authorship of The Lament of a Prisoner Against Fortune, wow. where he proposes Suffolk as an author. God. Richard Ruse, Lancastrian poet in 1961, oh. and then two articles at the very beginning of the 20th century by Eleanor Prescott Hammond, one in 1929, one in 1905. And what's interesting to look at the sort of critical tradition that surrounds this fail is that almost all of it is about bibliography, manuscript. Sure. There's very little about the literary contents of complaint of a prisoner against fortune because, as you've mentioned, and as we will surely mention again, because I don't know what we're going to say about it, there ain't much there. So, but and it, I mean, and it does become an interesting text as soon as you are attaching it to someone like Shirley, because then you're it's it's Chaucer adjacent, right? right. So it's the doing that that sort of like black hole of Chaucer where like. You know, one thing leads to another thing, and pretty soon you're like, "Well, if it touches on Chaucer, it must be important." It's like seven degrees, Let's, six six degrees of yeah. six degrees of yeah. Chaucer. Yeah. yeah. So that's 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 my background. I, um, we well, I'll talk about the poem. I've got some stuff to say about it. Okay. I have uh, sort of dredged my brain and. Some of the sources, and I can, I can, I can make a go of it. But uh, let's talk about this delicious-looking concoction okay. here. So, as David has mentioned, this poem offers very little to work with in terms of 
uh, inspiration for a cocktail. Mm. And this is what you've come up with. Just hear me out. So um, I, I, I cast my mind about through the poem trying to find something distinguishing upon which to build a cocktail. And let's just say it was not easy. I did look into the um, range of cocktails that are related to prison. Mm, that would have been delicious. It was a disaster. It was a horror show. Um, but here's the thing. I can't say I did any better. Because you're going to rue the day that you let me bring this cocktail. I'm going to apologize in advance. Is this going to be as bad as my uh, advocate-based Well, luckily disaster? this is advocate-based. You did the advocate based. It is an so advocate. So this is our second advocate based cocktail. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I will tell you why. God, why? I'm so That's sorry. Why? This, why? This cocktail. Uh, oh. Hold on, hold on. I got to find the lines. I just had them. Um, mm. uh, line 99. And, and down. So the, the poem's in Rhyme Royale. So I will read some stanza for you. Fee on this world, it is but fantasia. Okay, that's pretty solid. Mm. Suerta uh, is known, is no degree nestata. As well as a king, as a canav shall dee. Not witting... Wait, where am I? Oh, yeah. Not witting where, nor when, early or later. When men beth miriest, all day death saith, check mate. There is no man shall alway herb abide, the richest man ache. From his goad shall sleed. So we have an image of death saying checkmate. Mm -hmm. This is a cocktail, a legit cocktail. There's recipes for it on the internet, I promise, called The Seventh Seal. Mm. Bergman's great film, on upon, which is premised on a death game against chess. Which is going to be both infinitely better than both this cocktail and this poem. Oh, of course. It's a masterpiece of European cinema. This is a masterpiece of lowball, you're going to hate yourself for drinking it. It is advocat mm -hmm. with Sprite. Thank you. That's all. That's it? <laughs> so I can't... Listener, it looks like somebody blended a carbonated banana into a glass and poured it over ice and then put a lemon in it. It has a kind of... It's not Sprite, sorry. It's 7-Up, seven, seven seven cola. Sprite. It has a well, kind it's of... also 7 Oh, yeah, it's right. deep. That's yeah. important. Yeah. <laughs> it also has a kind of froth on the top the, that the reminds dairy. me of nothing more than like a, a sort of turbid lake after a storm. Oh, the, 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 um, the dairy with the carbonation produced a very rocky head, which is now settled into a very kind of cheese-like goo mm. with sh sort of sharp edges. So let's just get well, it cheers. over Well, cheers. <laughs> Do we have to... We don't have to do anything special here. No, we just have to drink it, oh. which is bad enough. It's basically an egg cream. Yeah, right? Isn't it? Which it's, I have never enjoyed. I as you know from our previous Avocado experience, I am not a favor of egg-based beverages. So here we are, mm -hmm. the seventh seal. I actually think it is better than the Newport Code Breaker, which is to say that it hasn't curdled yet. I would agree. Mm -hmm. It's... Um, there's a little bit of creaminess. Yep. It tastes a little bit lemony. Mm. And there's alcohol in it. But not much. I know. It's not a strong drink. That's too bad. No, I know. You should, you should have brought a chaser. Well, <laughs> my, sorry. You know, there was, a, there was a drink called a prison bitch, but I decided against it. There goes our crap. <laughs> there goes our crap. 
and I decided that would not be a good idea. It was also, it looked way worse than this, so whatever. Mm. All right, so take me um, into the complex and subtle nuances, the beautiful sophistication, the sort of stunning, poetic genius that is a complaint of a prisoner against fortune. I mean, you got 140 lines here. And you've got to divide it. Could have done it in seven, but. <laughs> divide, it, divide it into 20 Rhyme Royal stanzas. Rhyme Royal, of course, being a stanza form that was popularized by Chaucer in The Parliament of Fowls, in Trellis and Crusade, in The Clerk's Tale, and a number of his works, and it was picked up by James I uh, of Scotland when he was a prisoner, um, mm. a prisoner poet. Um, and that is, at least one theory is that that's how Rhyme Royal got its name, because it was being used by the king. Sure. I like um, and what you have here is a Boethian, and again, I put I should put Boethian in scare quotes. So, listener, I am putting Boethian in scare quotes. Uh, a Boethian complaint against the figure of fortune from a prisoner who has been unjustly imprisoned. Have we talked about Boethius at all? How could we have not talked about Boethius? Like, he's one of the primary philosophical and literary influences on... Everything. Right. I mean, I I, I think of Boethius' Constellation of Philosophy as one of the kind of base texts of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, but, but, But in short, in case we haven't talked about it, or in case a second listener has decided to join us midway through our advocate experience... Which is which is lingering. It's it really it does a, coat the mouth. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it leaves a of, film like a you know like you know that there 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 are alcoholic beverages that that are referred to as like digestifs. Right? This is not that. And I feel like this has the same effect as a kind of post digestif of like a like a like a, a kind of that coats your stomach. A regurgitif. <laughs> yes, it's exactly it. It's like the Pepto Bismol of of alcoholic it's, beverages. It's not good. It's not good. It's just not good. And mm. it's just not, it's not I good. I also can't get rid of the foam, no matter how hard I try to keep <laughs> touching my mouth when I try. Well, you're putting your face into a cup full. Anyway. Um, so, okay. Okay, so Boethius, very, the, yeah. the, the, the idea in the, the so Boethius is, I mean, Boethius wrote many works, but the, but the one for which he's most uh, well-remembered, and, and obviously the one that's had the, the most wide-ranging influence, is the Constellation of Philosophy. Boethius was imprisoned uh, in the 6th century, for a bunch of complicated reasons. Not wrongly. Uh, you know, I think it was not wrongly. I think word on the street is—is is, is that what word on the street is that uh. Boethius? I, I think word on the street is that Boethius was a was a was an influential and high-ranking member of Senator. Theodric's court. Yeah. Um, and people were out to get him. Um, That's and very he, he true. fell afoul of a bunch of different schisms in the church and in the state, one of which 500 years later was going to lead to the schism uh, sure. between the Eastern and Western churches. And I think he got ground up by the machine. So he's there in prison. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe he did something wrong by supporting the wrong heir to the throne or something like that, right? But, but you know, I mean, the, 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 he ends up in prison and he's got about a year before they execute him during his trial and all yep. this kind of stuff to think through things. Oh, and, we've talked about Boethius because we did the meters of Boethius. Oh, shit. In old so English. now I have to do this. No, I, no, I, I, I wrote this. I wrote this down. I, was, oh. I did. I did I, I, Look, stay your lane. Keep it going. No, 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 no I'm going to keep it going. So, you know, Boethius, Boethius uh, you know, has a, a, a dream vision, essentially, where he is in his prison cell complaining against fortune, complaining Complaining against his, complaining against his lot. Yes. And the lady philosophy comes down uh, and basically 
talks him through it for five books. They have dialogue. They have a long dialogue. They have a long dialogue and they go back and forth and Lady Philosophy talks about everything from, you know, free will to the nature of good and divine prominence, the existence of the will, the happiness residing in wisdom, the earthly pleasures being fleeting, the fickle nature of fortune. Like, literally the whole salami. And of course, it has in it the enduring literary image of the Wheel of Fortune. Right. which is one that, that gets absolutely latched onto in the Middle Ages and appears Tons. everywhere, including in this poem. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, I tend to think of this as, again, as sort of one of the central texts in the, the Middle Ages and in the later Middle Ages in particular, in my, yep. in my case. But Alfred, um, you know, Jesus, this thing's repeating on me already. King, King Alfred, um, King Alfred tr- translated it um, in in Old English. It was translated into French by Jean de Moon. Chaucer translated it into Middle English. It has influence on Dante's Divine Comedy. I mean, it's everywhere. Queen Elizabeth. Yep, yep. And so, like, it's it, it is this major, major monument. Um, and I and I think again, along with something like the Romance of the Rose and the Bible, like I, those are the texts that I think most of the later Middle Ages yeah, are, are sort absolutely. of based on. So, um, but. but but Boethius yeah. is a complex thinker working through a number of philosophical issues, as you mentioned. He's trained I mean, he seems to be Neoplatonic in his philosophy. Yep. I mean, late antique, early early medieval, one of those things. Um Boethius also the text is I mean, I, I maybe you said this, it's not overtly Christian. No. Jesus is never mentioned, salvation is never mentioned. I mean, Boethius presumably is Christian. Yes, and the poem was used by Christian authors yeah. wholeheartedly because it uh, it imagines a vision of God that is not distinct or not, is not opposed to the Christian God, you right. know, above all things, seeing and knowing all things, um, granting people free will in terms of whether they choose to sin or not. But um, recognizing, but, too, that there is a divine order to these things that and, they don't have yes, access to. And presenting for the world the ascetic vision of um you know that that this world is transitory this world is this material world is going to fade and mean nothing the only world that matters is the future world right yeah i think that's i think that's i I think that's important here and that transitoriness is of course something that gives boethius comfort in his final days um but what's interesting there is that boethius it you know that, that's that, as you, as you mentioned that is an intensely complicated lengthy and and also sort of reciprocal discussion right boethius as the prisoner and lady philosophy go back and forth and back yeah. and forth and and together you know there's a kind of dialogic sensibility to this that i think is suggestive in some ways of scholasticism, right? They go back mm. and forth and they come to a kind of understanding and Boethius grows and learns through this process. Sure. And this process too is something that a lot of medieval writers will attempt to replicate in their own work. Yeah. The complaint of a prisoner against fortune does not do that. It promises what sounds for all the world like it's going to be a, a straight up Boethian complaint and yeah. dialogue but then it's not any kind of reasonable guide like Lady Philosophy or like, you know, Lady Natura or something like this that steps in. It's not that kind of guide. It turns out the only answer that the the prisoner gets is Fortune herself. Yeah, and she weighs in for two stanzas. And she literally is like, get bent, bro. And so like, so so yeah. so it begins, you know, alas, and I'll read a little bit of it, but not much. Uh, alas, <laughs> Fortune, alas. 
What have I guilt? What have I done wrong? What is my guilt? In prison thus to lie a hair desolata. Are to the better thus to have me spilt? Nay, nay, God award. But for thou wilt debate with every week, either early or late, and art changeable ache as the mona. From well to woe thou bringest a man full sona. And so he rages for four stanzas against fortune. Yes. And then fortune, not lady philosophy, not, you know, a, a sort of divine figure that's going to help him through it, but fortune herself Shows up says, shut up, <laughs> right? <laughs> Pace of the wordus that are both lewd and nisa. Peace. Cease speaking. Your words are both foolish and ignorant. Yeah. Lewd and nisa. Yeah. Whence do that God chastiseth they for naught? Do you think that God's chastising you for nothing? Though thou be guiltless, he grant well in this we say. It is for sinus that thou hast afore wrought, that no parantra for little are in the thought. Therefore to glada it is written thus, Maxima etinem morum semper patientia virtus. The greatest virtue is patience, essentially. Yeah. So you have her Deal basically saying, Keep calm and get carry stuffed, on. <laughs> right? You're in prison. Whatever. Yeah. You probably did something wrong, even if you don't know what it is. Yeah. So settle yourself so down. Deal. And and so there is none of this give and take. There is none of this like yeah. let's work through how to how to you know turn our our whining and whinging into the service of a sort of divine providence or into the the recognition of the search for the good or anything like that. There is there is just basically a, a kick in the teeth by fortune. And after that kick in the teeth, which is, I think, very analogous to drinking this beverage. Oh, it's so gross. It's pretty bad. The prisoner continues to rage. Yeah. The prisoner does not then sort of say, okay, the prisoner rages against Cloto, Lachaeus, and Antropos, the three fates, yes. one of whom spins, one of whom measures, and one of whom cuts the thread right. of life. The prisoner then rages against his loss of fame and reputation and yeah, he, friendship in, in what I think is a very Hocklevian mood. He then says, fie on this world, and finally, seemingly all by himself, right, oh. not... She not, seems to have disappeared. She's gone. She just sort of shows Fortune, up and she like flips him the bird yeah. and then she's out. Fortune then, exit stage left. Yeah, finally, he just kind of, at, at line 120, toward the end of this, he's just like, whatever. All holy church that is his very espousa, benigna lord, capa from damage. And he eventually just sort of says, he kind of gives up, right? And he it does. reminds me of the night at the end of The Wife of Bastail, who just kind of horrifically just sort of is like, whatever. I don't care if you're going to be beautiful and true. or I, I, I can't deal. Just do it. Right. right. And then, you know, he gets everything he wants and presumably this guy just rots away in prison. So yeah. it's a weird it's a weird yeah. thing. It has the shape of a Boethian constellation, but there's not much consolation and there's not much philosophy behind it. It just eventually he just kind of gets ground down into feeling penitent. So what do we do with this? Well, I mean, so I guess the le I mean the lesson, I mean I guess the the just superficial lesson is right that they, oh, just turn to God, you know, in this, in these bad times, just turn to God. That's what you're supposed to do. So with that, and if that's the, that's the sort of like Christian vulgarization of Boethius and the, just the straight up takeaway message, David just slammed the rest of his drink. The best part is he's grimacing and there's a huge glob of foam on his nose oh, oh, because it is a classy operation we run here at the Canterbury mm. Fails Enterprises and oh, wow, industrial... Solvents. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> it's so bad. It is waxy. Like there's something. About, I, I, I don't think. I don't think I can find a, a good use for avocat. There is no good use for avocat. Like, I mean, I, there there are cream based liqueurs that I, I sort of 
enjoy every like Bailey's. I can get behind something with Bailey's and coffee with Bailey's in it. But that is this is and this is diluted with a lot of seven I, but up. It, but it, I can't get the I can't get the feel like I want to wipe my tongue with a cloth. <laughs> I can't get it out of my throat. Like I, I need to. I need to. <sighs> yes, listener. I'm sorry. The cocktail yet again a bad bad cocktail. Um. Mm. Okay, so so I agree with the, the the sort of like highly limited Boethianism of a Boethian poem. Yep. Um, I mean, it's clearly a just uh, the sort of most basic understanding of Boethius. Like, oh, Boethius he teaches you to look to God instead of yep. wailing about your own fortune, um, and that's fine. I mean, what whatever. It, it's pretty weak sauce, um, as is a lot of the poem. I think that the turn to the three fates makes no sense at all. Yep. Right, like, why turn to the three Latin goddesses of fate? The you know who we what is it? Spin, measure, and cut. Like, I don't out understand the nowhere. Rule. Out of nowhere, there's nothing. There's nothing about that in Boethius. And he's like, I mean, you know, so oh, it's not working to call on fortune. Now I'm going to call on them. It's like, yeah. okay. And then he, and then he, you know, he's, <laughs> it's he like almost, he almost like exposes the sort of dumbness of the literary conceit at line, uh, one fourteen. There is no more isenuel at ale. I can't remember it. Um, these feigned goddesses and goddesses avail a richt anocht. Like these fake goddesses, is this this fake goddess game is not yeah. going to work. Fortune and egg mm. the sustress e defia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's just so he you know he turn he turns to church, and I think that's the that's the moralitas that we are stuck with. Yeah. And um, so you don't get the philosophy, you don't really get the consolation. But you get a sort of like watered down Boethianism of the of the of maybe a very indirect sort. Yeah. I mean, well, there's other parts of this that are strange, though. So I mean, there's 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 the addition of something that Boethius never talks about, which is the idea of oh, now you've got this stuff all over your nose too. It's I know it's grisly. Um, th- there's this weird bit where he's like. You know, and 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 um, what's her face? Fortune suggests this to him. It's like these years in prison are going to be years that you get sort of shaved off of your time in purgatory. Oh yeah, right. But Boethius has nothing to do with that. Boethius doesn't have purgatory. No, there's it's, it doesn't even exist for him. And so like, where is that coming from? There's this strange bit where like she seems to suggest that he actually has done something wrong, and and he just doesn't know it, and God punishes him for his iniquities, and that yeah. this is presumably even if it's not like he's in prison for actually committing the murder or robbery or whatever he might have done he's surely done something so he should just sit there and take it like it's just a strange kind of inconsistent collection of impulses toward his victimization and I don't sort of blame him for being upset about it he doesn't it doesn't make any real sense um and his upsetness about it is the only part of it that I found sort of I mean I was trying to extract something compelling you know, the way that he, like, is searching for some sort of yeah. buddy to blame it on, trying to find a way out, and he's never going to. Um, it led me to something, like, the, you know, the, the mention of losing a friends, the, I mean, I guess that happens, or losing a reputation, the being in, in, you know, in prison wrongly. Like, I wonder, I mean, it's interesting that you, you talk through the various authors and who they could be, and undoubtedly all of them were in prison. So it I, did yeah. it did it did seem to be a text that gestured toward a kind of Romana clay like sort of like thing, right? Like that it's like it's general enough that it could be anyone, but I kept being like, are the people in the know supposed to know who this is? 
right? Is this is there some sort of like, a, like actual historical figure that's meant to be gestured to for those insiders who would know? But then you then I went back and looked yeah. through, and I'm like, there's just no details that are even that telling. It's interesting. I mean, so you had. What you and I are both seeking, and I'm going to explain how I'm doing it differently uh, in a minute, but what you and I are both seeking is in some ways a way out of the sort of banality of this poem. And you're thinking that maybe a way out of the banality of this poem might be to like go heavy historicizing it, right? Like you actually have a person and this is really a kind of like, you know, biting the middle finger to... Uh, you know, some somebody that threw this, whoever, the, the Duke of Suffolk into sure. prison or something like that. I had questions that I, I, I wanted in some way to go in the opposite direction. Okay. And say, instead of thinking, okay, this is an individual person, this is Usk, right? Who we know is a far better writer than this. This is um, De La Pole. This is Ashby. This is somebody like that. I was thinking about what is the, what if this isn't prison literature? Right. What if, I mean, this is prison literature insofar as it imagines that conceit. Um, but Pache Lynn Mooney and Mary Jo Arne and Pache Richard Firth Green, uh, I, I'm, I'm not so convinced that the details in this poem make it impossible that this isn't a kind of rhetorical gesture. Right. Oh. That this isn't somebody who has just imagined his way into prison to create a kind of Boethian uh, frame, to, 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 to who's, who's essentially a kind of, it's a kind of literary gesture. Um, so what if this isn't actually prison literature, that this has never seen the inside of a prison, but it's using that rhetorical gesture in order to do a kind of work? Who would be writing, who would write this? Like, what work would that be? What work would that be? And in, in, what, in what ways does this particular distillation of Boethianism gesture toward some kind of social or cultural effort. Okay. And I have no freaking idea. No idea, idea because, it, I mean, the only thing, I, when you're talking about it like that way, like if it's, if it is... The, the, the purgatorial if it's aspect a rhetorical, is the only thing I can think of. If it's a rhetorical performance of some sort, which is meant to sort of index something, like you're saying, the only thing that comes to mind, and I know this is impossible to ascertain as well but like i when i i we talked about how it's chaucerian right and i think the the maybe the poem is a sort of pastiche of chaucerian motifs right it's it's a it's a sort of weird bricolage of moments that that glance at chaucer so you have um he's in the prison and he blames Saturn and Mars at 24. So I'm like, right. oh, okay. Oh, it's the Night's Tale. And then he's playing chess with death. Oh, it's oh, it's the Book of the Duchess, yeah. right? There are lines in here that remind me of parts of the Troyes and, Troyes and Crusader, right? So like, is it a kind of, is it a kind of meta performance of Chaucerian Boethianism? But why? And what would that even mean? Well, the only, I mean, you know, if, if we contextualize this within its sort of manuscript tradition, right, then it could be doing that sort of 15th century thing where it's trying to smooth out the rough edges on Chaucer. Where it's oh, it does. To... It's so smooth. There's <laughs> nothing to grab. <laughs> but, it, you know, I mean, it could be doing that kind of work. So it could be, I mean, this this could be, uh, you know, most interesting as a kind of gesture toward canonization. Not canonization. Yeah, canonization. Not, not, in, the, not in the sort of saintly way, but in, right. in, in a sort of literary way. Um, so it could be doing that 
kind of work. There is a there's a one of my favorite one of my favorite lines in literary criticism is from Derek Pearsall, and it's in his description of Lydgate. And, and I, I've probably brought it up before on here, and I can't do it line for line. I haven't written it down. But he says something. He, he, he relates a kind of weird homespun tale about how when children swallow sharp objects back in his, like, home county in England or something like that, their mothers force them to eat a piece of sticky bun that in the, in the stomach or in the belly coats the object. And it's a weird story, and I, I can't even believe that it's true. But the line that follows is the is the is the is the exciting part. He says, "Chaucer is the sharp object, Lydgate is the sticky bun." And so this <laughs> may be doing that kind of work. I mean, this could be a kind of Chaucerian sticky bun. But again, I feel like that's ascribing too much agency in some ways to this poem. This is a kind of passive collection of, uh, as you say, I mean, motifs. I mean, it it just could be. I mean, I know that we don't talk in these terms, but maybe it's just bad verse. You know, by a by a, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, I mean, it's. It like, is also pretty bad verse. It's pretty it's, bad verse. Again, Lynn, Lynn Mooney in in her introduction and Mary Jorn sort of talk about that. You know, it's 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 good, not great poetry. I don't think I'd go that far. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I, it's it's you know it. I mean, it's just like a, someone who tried and. Obviously, it was appealing enough that it's in more than one manuscript, did you say? Yeah, but the manuscripts are all... I mean, they, they may be... You know, the whole manuscript was copied and this just got caught up in the fun. The, the I don't lucky. know. I don't know. Um, and, you know, it makes... It, it makes... It does try to show off its learning by the numerous classical references. But it uses Latin. Echo. Uh, you know, the, um, the, the fates. Like, there's yeah. this, like... So there's, like... Echo, by the way, is another Chaucerian illusion. Yeah, that's There's, what I was. I mean, it, it exists in the in the book of the Duchess, and it exists in um, the Clerk's Tale. Right, right, right. So, I mean, which is in Rhyme Royal. So, I mean, it. But both of uh, I know the book of the Duchess is a couple of, but 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 Clerk's Tale is Rhyme Royal. So it, it is a, you know, it does seem to be in some way trying to <laughs> glom onto that. I don't know, but I mean, I don't know what else to do with it. I really don't. I you know the the historicist. Impulse in me says, "Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a veiled, you know, autobiographical message." But then you're like, "It's so veiled that no one would ever know who it is," yeah. or it's some sort of like pastiche bricolage of, you know, metachaucerianism. But even that's not but to what end? Like, yeah. what world would what world would that be useful in? I don't know. <laughs> not, I don't Much know. like what world would that drink be served in? Why is there a recipe for this drink on the internet? I guess there's anything you want on the internet. That's true. But why is it called the Seventh Seal? I guess the Seven Up. It's the I mean, seven it's up. just it is. It is that. It, but but the, the poem sort of operates on that kind. Yeah, of I know level that's the critical. Too. That is the critical level. Dude, I'm gonna at. make a drink called the Seventh Seal, and it's gonna have some. It's not even Swedish though. Why would they use a Dutch cream liqueur? I don't know because how many cream liqueur? I don't know. It's the disgusting. Swedes must have one like made of herring or something like that. Maybe I can find that next time. Mm. I think it's time to rate it. I mean, I, oh, I get to do it. It's your, it's your call on the scale. I'm looking forward to knowing what that is, and I'm also looking forward. I have to say, I don't usually feel this way, and I don't want you to take this personally because it oh. has nothing to do with you. I don't. But I am looking forward to turning off 
the microphone because I need something else to drink. I need like at least a like, tall glass of water or something to just because my whole throat, like, I can feel it in my throat. That's the weird thing. Like it's not even in my mouth anymore, but by my throat, there's a whole like layer of something going on. We, in there. we need to write a poem about the complaint of advoca- mm. against advocate, not fortune. Um, uh, I'm gonna rank it on a scale from one to three fates. <laughs> one to three fates. Mm-hmm. All right, and I get to rank the poem. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give it one fate. That is absolutely it, generous. It was nothing against you, much like you just said about the drink. This was the weakest sauce we've had on the fails for a while. It it, it is. You know, it is. Um, and uh, and that's bound to happen when you're trying to do a sh- podcast about fails. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes you run into a real fail. An actual fail. All right. So I, I join you in okay. one in one fate. I will specify that that fate is Cloto, um, but I have no particular reason for that, much like the poem itself. So yeah, one uh, one fate. Uh, in terms of the drink, I don't even know if it gets a Cloto. That oh. was that was gruesome. Um, I mean that that is. So so we are we are like zero for two on advocate based cocktail. I, I think we should retire. The I advocate. think it's time to learn our lesson. I know that, that sometimes it's fun to have something that is repulsive, and then you know maybe our listener enjoys listening to us. Try much to like this it poem, down, much but... like this poem, it's fun in theory, yeah. but in practice, it's a real cane it's in like the ass. Sitting out and watching what's that terrible movie? That Sir Gawain and the Green Knight movie, Sword oh, of the Sword Valiant. Of the Valiant. Right? So. Uh, I, I, you know, have a copy of Sword of the Valiant on DVD, as I suspect many medievalists do, um, or at least some. And I remember thinking to myself when I first sat down to watch it, this is going to be one of those movies that's so bad, it's awesome. And it is for a hot, like, six and a half minutes when Sean Connery is in there and he's like, come to me, my body, right? But then it goes beyond that. And you just kind of lose time. Not beyond, it's below. It just sinks. It, it's, it's so it's, bad. It's so bad, it's just bad again. Yeah. So that's sort of how I felt about that drink. Yeah. That is a zero fate drink. And I'm with you all the way. That was disgusting. Um, I don't think it was like like objectively gross as the code breaker. No, the code breaker, well, it, the co- it didn't curdle. I mean, but this was I feel ins- like that might have been my fault. Maybe we'll try that one again. No, we will not. <laughs> this is insidiously gross. Like you're thinking, how bad could it be? It's mostly 7-Up. Yeah. And it is just bad. Yeah. Um, so zero zero on the cocktail. Um, next week, folks, <clears throat> listener, um, we have a very special bonus wow. episode. Yeah. It's uh, uh, of the Canterbury Fails. So stay tuned. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. <laughs>